Each Friday, we bring you something a little bit different, a podcast from the world of security with our very own Jim Tiller. This is Security Bytes. People here are important, and not just the technical people, but the other people in your business who maybe don't have that role monitoring, but definitely know in their world or in their particular area of the company what's right and what's wrong and getting them to understand how that translates into risks that the company is taking on. Welcome to Security Bytes. A weekly show where we cover interesting cybersecurity news from the week. And then we're joined by a leading cybersecurity expert to discuss today's pressing business and technical challenges of security. Join me, your host, Jim Tiller, brought to you by and powered by Nash Squared. Let's get started. In this episode, I wanted to talk about something that uh, I've been working with for a while and actually still working with it to this day, which is essentially the ISO 27001 and 27002 uh, standards. I think it's important to note that 27002 was published. There's a new version, a 2022 version that was published in February, and it does represent some meaningful changes. I think it's important to note one of the key ones is around the introduction of the or the reintroduction of the word information security. So in the original 2013 version of 27002, it said, quote unquote, information technology, security techniques and code of practice for information security controls. The new title, the standard if you will, is called information security, cyber security and privacy protection, information security controls. And I think it's an interesting distinction that we're sort of, I don't know, like a better term, re-embracing the term information security and also separating it from the term cyber security, which I think sometimes words matter and this is one of them. But there's also other components. The sort of theme, if you will, is trying to make cyber more uh, obtainable within regards to the practices. I think they're more simplified, more direct, and also instead of being a code, it's really more around making it more, more reasonable to apply these standards more broadly across the organization. You know, we all know that you define a scope and within that scope, then you apply the various controls and policies to achieve ISO compliance within that spectrum, right? Now, in some ways, that's that's just how you do it. You know, you just say, this is the part that I'm gonna put those practice in. But in reality is you really want to have security be more organizationally wide. And some of these controls are just not realistic in a very broad spectrum, of, especially with global organizations running all different types of activities and, and lines of business. But anyway, it's supposed to lighten that up a little bit. So for example, we used to have, or shall I say in the previous 2013 version, was essentially had 14 controlled domains or categories, uh, themes, if you will. Um, now that's been reduced to four security categories or domains. Um, and also it went from 114 controls across these 14 clauses. I know I keep using different terms. It's just the old person in me. Um, now we're down to these four categories or themes with 93 controls and what's interesting about that is there's 11 new controls 
I know it doesn't sound like a big deal, but that's, you know, 10% of the old one. So obviously we're getting 12, 13% is completely new. So, you know, pretty interesting. Uh, 24 of the controls that make up those 93 were actually just merged controls from the previous version. So uh, a large portion of those 93, 24 of them, are just taking what was out there and compressing them down, which is great. Um, now, hopefully, I haven't had a chance to sort of inspect each one, but what I'm hoping is they just didn't just add all the words together and put them in one control as opposed to actually simplifying and truly consolidating in many ways. And I think also with the remaining 58 controls from the previous 27,002 to 13, they've been reviewed, revised, and more alignment with cybersecurity and information security and bringing that contextual component of it. Anyway, the, the net net of this is the 27001 version 2022 will be formally published, I believe, in October of this year, which is in just a few days. Uh, I'm recording this in late September. And so I think if you're looking at ISO certification, if you're looking at renewing or you're looking at these types of things, now's a great time to take a look at these controls and see how they affect your environment. And I also encourage you just take another look at your scope. Um, I know that nobody wants to sort of open themselves up to scooping in other elements of the business, but when you look at these controls, you might be able to expand the footprint of that ISO certification if that's what you're looking to seek, or it certainly makes it a lot easier to certify different parts of the business more readily. So I think that's going to be interesting. And before we get on to my guest interview for this episode, I wanted to highlight something that she wanted to make sure that I make note of and that the audience is aware is that her comments are her own and do not represent the views of her organization. In this case, um, Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon and any other organization that she's part of and the services that she provides. So her comments are her own and not representative of the views or opinions of her organization. And with that, let's get started. All right, I'm excited to introduce a very special guest today. With over 30 years in IT and information security, she has focused on information security governance, risk management, compliance, and assurance. She works to help international teams build a mature security operations and incident management capability. She's currently the Senior Cyber Operations Researcher at CERT, which is a division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon, right here in Pittsburgh, USA. She's also a PhD candidate with a specialty in information assurance and cybersecurity. It is really great to have her on the show today. I give you Sharon Budd. How you doing, Sharon? I'm doing all right, Jim. Thank you. That was, that was a nice intro. <laughs> Absolutely. Well practiced. Well practiced. <laughs> so uh, there's really, like I was saying earlier, there's really a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. And one of the things when we had some pre-communication getting ready for this is you said something that really resonated with me around your views, which you have, you know, more than three decades in this space, right? So these views are very valuable, is the human factor in information security risk management, right? right. And so I, I thought that was really interesting. And I want to take off in a huge direction in this case. But you also something I want to touch into for a minute about how you're an athletic coach and mentor today. And I'm very curious about, well, first, let's just talk about that a little bit. What are you doing? What do you coach and stuff like that? What are some of the practices? But also, it was really interesting transition with regards to 
coaching and mentoring and how that makes you relate to the human equation within cybersecurity. I thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition. Can you share a little bit more there? Sure. So uh, I actually moved to another state in May, so I'm not coaching right at the moment, but uh, I've done a number of things on that front. Uh, I've coached um, at the high school level, girls basketball. Um, I've coached from uh, the age of eight up till 18, boys lacrosse. Um, so I, I tend to focus more on team sports and, and the related concepts of that. I played basketball. I played volleyball uh, in college. So that's kind of where my interest is. I also, um, from a coaching perspective, more of an, more of an instruction perspective, uh, of a martial arts background as well in a Korean martial art. So I've done a lot of teaching. I had I had my own uh, school for just a little while. <laughs> One place where I lived, I've moved a lot. Um, so that's kind of where my coaching interest lays, you know, helping people um, build foundational skills in these kinds of activities uh, is really where I where I shine in that particular regard, especially defense. So, you know, fundamental defensive skills are are the things that I love. So I think that translates fairly well into cyber yeah. world. Right. Um, and. Right now, I also uh, host a mentoring group uh, with the Women in Cybersecurity Organization. Mm, um, it's a 12-month perfect. mentoring program. We're, we're about to come up on our full year. So we've had a really great time with that group. Um, both, you know, going over, we have um, topics every month that we talk about suggested by the, the mentoring platform that we use. Um, but my group is very free about, hey, this this came up this month for me. What do you guys think? Uh, so we do a lot of um, just kind of on the spot um, talking through different perspectives on any, any given issue. So that's, that's kind of that, that piece of it. Part of my current job um, is you mentioned doing international work um, with, in my mind, it's the same type of skills, right? I go and I try to help people understand the, the their business and cybersecurity and how to get to the next step or how to put something in or how to mature their program, that kind of thing. I've done that a lot. I have a lot of lessons learned uh, if you will so I'd like to pass those along to help people get a little better at what they do. Well, everything you're saying is, I, this may have to be like one of those three hour shows. We have to do a couple episodes because I already censor so much <laughs> I want to talk to you about. But I did want to take a moment to point out for our audience a couple of things. One is I think it's amazing that you have women in cyber program that you're working as part of. It sounds like you have this kind of 12 month mm -hmm. program. Yeah. That's very exciting. And for, for the audience is I want to encourage everybody to join us, which you are a panel speaker on November 16th at uh, 1500 UK time or 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, we're doing a live broadcast on a panel discussion about women, cyber and security. You're one of the panelists. And we're also uh, combining this with a global women in cyber capture the flag event that actually kicks off 24 hours before. So, um, so keep an eye out on that. And of course you're going to be on that, uh, that panel. And I think that's going to be amazing. And, uh, I think it's really cool that what you're doing around women in cyber, um, I'm pretty passionate about that topic because, uh, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of women in cyber, uh, in different organizations. And there's just, when you have, when you have a diverse set of people in the room, um, you get different ideas from different angles, different perspectives, different ways of looking at a problem. And I got news for you. The greater the diversity and vision of a problem in cybersecurity is your greatest asset. Oh, absolutely. Full stop. Absolutely. Now, you can say that about a lot of things, like maybe in the medical profession and stuff like that. But I think for some reason in cyber, especially in cyber business, um, you know, working in organizations, trying to help others, which, you know, of course you, you do a great deal of, um, I think that diversity and thought is so, so critical. All right. Okay. 
So I got, <laughs> I'm hoping to stay on topic, but I'm just really excited to talk to you. I'll, I'll go with you, Jim, wherever you want to go. You ready? Let's go. All right. So the, you mentioned like uh, helping customers build a more mature program. Sure. I am very, anybody who knows me, I'm all about capability and maturity in the cyberspace. Um, I got an opportunity to work with folks from Carnegie and that workshops around the SSC CMM model mm -hmm. back in, well, I got involved in 97. Yeah. We're going back a few years. Right. And, and so it was originally kind of taking form in 95. It started getting more interesting in 97 and that spawned a lot of activities in that front. I'm a huge fan. Of course, you've been around for a while. So, you know, that now we're seeing a lot of that, like CMMC, we're seeing right. a lot of these things kind of come to manifestation. So the fact is that you're working in CERT, which is an amazing organization with an amazing Carnegie Mellon, which is the home of some of the best science and standards that have ever hit cybersecurity. I mean, let's let's just call it duck. That's where a lot of that started to happen. Yeah, sure. So, so what's it like to be part of that organization? And do you find maturity a big part of, do you find maturity being a big part of what you're doing for your customers relative to some of the work that's been done at Carnegie and things of that nature? Uh, so let me answer the first part of that. It, it's been absolutely amazing um, to be you know, a part of this organization. You mentioned when the CMMC or the CMM came out, uh, I was working, you know, I've worked private industry until I got this job. And I remember using that stuff. I used it for 20, 25 years. And on my, my interview um, with the SEI, I was talking to people who wrote that their names are on the paper. So wow. I work, those people are in my group now. So I was, I was kind of um, a little bit surprised that they offered me the job to be, to be Frank. You know, they said, Hey, you know, we, we'd like you to come work for us. And I was like, really? <laughs> me? With all the stuff <laughs> you've ever amazing. done over the years, you want me to come? Uh, so that was pretty amazing. Uh, so I, I, everybody that I've worked with um, in the cert, especially has been just fantastic. Uh, willing, willing to give time, willing to offer opinions, willing to you know, critique work if you want, we'd ask them to. Um, it's one of the most amazing kind of professional experiences I've had. So I'm very happy about that. Uh, and yes, part of my role is helping establish and build um, more and more mature cyber operations. Um, now, normally uh, I would be going to places who have maybe just barely scratched the surface of building their capacity. Um, but that's, that's kind of where me in particular, that's kind of where I shine, right? I like building from the ground up. That's what I've done professionally for private companies for the last 20 years. Uh, so I, I, I find myself in that space just because I, it's, I'm comfortable there and I'm uh, reasonably good at giving people aspects that they may not have considered uh, for programs, but also then going back to those same, um, end customers, you know, over a year, over two year period and seeing how they've built is really fascinating to me. Probably very rewarding oh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It, you know, it's, it's a weird thing for me to think about, you know, the, the kind of the world of cybersecurity, literally the world is a little bit better because I've been doing this work for a couple of years. So I think that's a humbling experience and also cool, right? <laughs> absolutely. No, nothing like going and helping an organization and coming back one, two years, and maybe even more, and seeing how your work has grown over time or manifested and, and how you've contributed to that. And I think you said something really interesting is about the the world. And I think we, maybe it's just human nature, but we do tend to think in terms of locality. Mm -hmm. uh, and then international is just this sort of like nebulous thing sometimes, right? And uh, 
when we think about cybersecurity is that there really is no borders. I mean, look at how people get attacked and all that kind of stuff, right? So when you're helping a company, it can have so many first, second, third degree and tangential types of implications in a very positive way. And I know that sounds a little bit like, you know, you know, maybe a little bit too fluffy at times, <laughs> but I, I, I do think if I can help a customer not get hacked in some way, shape or form oh, yeah. or build a more mature program, that's going to, that's going to create a rhythm, making them less uh, susceptible and all that that could imply to their customers and all that kind of good stuff. So I thought it would be fun now to talk about the human part of it. Cause this is where, uh, so let me just give you a kind of a picture why this is excites me is I've always been two things. One is I feel like we tried to solve security with technology. People that who know me and are listening to this show before know that I've always envisioned as a pendulum over the years, you know, you have a very, we need to be more technical. Well, that's not really working. So let's really kind of go over here to process and risk management and, you know, the birth of GRC and that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. we still need to deal with these threats. So then the pendulum starts to swing back to technology. And for decades, it was pretty consistent. But I would say, especially with the onset of the cloud and all the evolutions in technology we've experienced in the last decade or so, maybe eight, nine, 10 years, is I feel like that pendulum's kind of stuck on the technology side. And then, uh, you know, when we were collaborating over email prior to this is, you know, your views around the human is not being measured. That human component is not really finding its way into how we're looking at risk and we're looking for technical solutions. So I'm just going to kick it off is, you know, when you look at information security risk management programs, what is your approach? What is your overall theory on the role of humans and people and individuals in cybersecurity? And maybe juxtapose that to what are we not doing well today? Okay, sure. Um, this stop me when I start to get way into the weeds, maybe. Um, but I just wanted to comment on uh, the first thing you said was you know thing the technical pendulum is, is now back fully technical, um, or it swings a lot back and forth. Um, I don't know philosophically kind of why you think that is, but I think it's because implementing technical solutions or going after and purchasing a new thing is easier for people to understand. Especially, you know, especially in a management capability where you're trying to prove that you're doing something to better the, the organization that you're in, right? I bought this new thing. It's, it gives me lots of numbers and I can show how these numbers trend over time. That's fantastic. But the opposite side of that is it, things focus, I think, on technical um, solutions because human behavior is very difficult to change. So if you want to balance that with uh, with the technical and the human side in an information you know, risk management program, you have to figure out why the humans are doing what they're doing. Uh, and that's for people who started in a technical field, who, who grew up in IT, that was never a focus before. I just happened to do that, I think, because I've always kind of been fascinated with why people do what they do. Um, I have, you know, way back to my undergrad, you know, Decades ago, uh, I have a sociology minor with a computer science degree. That doesn't really happen very often. Um, so I've always just kind of been, you know, in that space of, you know, why do these people behave this way? Why can't they understand what is so easy for me to understand about cybersecurity or about whatever technical topic I'm talking about? Um, so you mentioned my dissertation. One of the things I'm looking at there is leadership in this space, you know, information security risk management. How are they combating that lack of balance between technical and human and specifically what have they found that's effective um, or that, that how are they building those programs to encourage that human side uh, to help them? Cause I think you have to have a balance, right? Every 
industry report that I've read over the last 15 years always has a number that kind of sort of hangs around 30%, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, of human sources for security problems or data breaches, you know, causes. So I'm about, about there. It, it fluctuates a little, but I would say kind of on average, um, about 30%. And that doesn't change. So no matter how much technology you throw at it, like you mentioned, you're not going to change some of those core, you know, fundamental things that, that people bring to the table. That's my first answer. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I saw you writing everything. Every, yeah. Everything you're saying is amazing. And I think I always find it fascinating when you, when somebody of your caliber, I get a chance to talk to you like this and you say something, I'm like, wow, there's, there's really depth in that statement. Like we find technology is an easy decision. It says what it says on the 10, I can spend money on it and I can introduce it in my environment. And of course we know, that never works out really well. Well, you can right? show ROI, right? That's the thing, right? Show ROI on your investments. Well, you can't do that as easily with people. It's it, very much so. I, I, would, I think it's difficult in, in just in general and then add security to it and then add a person to that. That's very, very difficult. Yeah. And But I would even go back to say that there was a recent study, I say recent, a couple of years ago, about on average only 20% of a technical solutions capabilities are being used at any one given time right okay um and you said 30 percent being relative to human uh i i sometimes i think that number is much larger but it's but i think on average it is definitely so imagine if you could correct 30 percent. yeah it's a huge chunk a third who's categorizing human based you know cause right exactly you know, humans wrote the software, humans wrote the, you know, the code for the routers or whatever. Um, so I guess everything could track back to human. But I think these reports that I've that I've read, a number of them um, have been specific to, you know, the human did something that, that, you know, they gave up their credentials or they made it made a mistake and, and, and opened up a connectivity piece that, that they shouldn't have or something that was more obvious that a person's fingers were on a keyboard somewhere. So I had a conversation not too long ago. It's been echoing in and out of my vernacular now for some time, and I'm sure you have it all the time. <laughs> but I, I I always say that, you know, and then we'll talk in form of corporate with, with employees. I know it's a little bit more dry and callous, but is do you see employees as a cybersecurity asset? Because I think some corporations see them as a liability. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that kind of is the crux of the reason why I chose my dissertation topic the way I have, right? I've had that same struggle, you know, for at least 15 years now, try, me thinking people have got to be brought along as more of the solution and less as just assumed that they're the problem. There's been some interesting new research just in the last maybe three years that is starting to bridge that gap. Um, most of the work that I've looked at from an academic research perspective um, has been constant on people are the problem. They don't want to do compliance. They're too busy. They're overwhelmed. All of these problems, but nobody has kind of really put something together to say, how can we may now make them part of the, the solution? How to make them beneficial to a program? So I think, yeah, they have to be part of it. Um, or you only get the negative aspects of people at that point, right? <laughs> if you're limiting yourself to only the negative input from the humans on your on your staff, uh, then you know by nature you're going to think the humans are all bad. But you have to kind of turn that around. They can be very beneficial. I think one of the ways they can be very beneficial is just in the simple case of you know monitoring you know, different things. Alert if you have a sim tool, if you have whatever kind of monitoring tool, humans are much more equipped uh, to process anomalies 
than a lot of the software that has come up with AI is getting better. But I think humans are much quicker to say, wait, this thing doesn't look right. Um, just because of the, the processing speed that happens, you know, in the brain, it, it's just quicker and easier. It weeds things out a lot easier. Pattern recognition is a very, is a human strength by far. So getting to that point where you're thinking, wait, the people here are important and not just the technical people, but the other people in your business who maybe don't have that role monitoring, but definitely know in their world or in their particular area of the company, what's right and what's wrong and getting them to understand how that translates into risks that the company is taking on, I think is super important for them to say, because people don't want to do bad things, right? I think generally people want to do the right thing. They don't always know what it is. They often feel like they're too busy to talk to somebody else when they notice something. So changing that aspect of the human behavior, I think is really interesting to me. Like I want, I want to talk to some people who have done that and, and get some of those lessons learned. And I've, I've had many attempts at it. I can't say that I've been a hundred percent, hundred percent successful at this point. Do you think there's a fear aspect to it? I, hmm. I, I run into a lot of situations where I feel like there's a sense of fear to, to raise your hand and call something out. Well, I think there's that. Um, I think sometimes people like to be a little tunnel visioned, right? This is my job. I'm just going to do my job. And, and security belongs to the technical people. There's a little bit of that. Um, I think, so there's a little bit of fear, like they're, you know, security monitoring tools are monitoring what they're doing. So there's a little bit of that big brother kind of thing. Like if I raise my hand about this thing that I think is wrong, is that going to create more scrutiny on the things that I'm doing or the, the activities that I have? Whether that's founded or unfounded, it, it's a natural response, I think. I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. That's my thing. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think because I go back to little things like metrics around mm-hmm. like spam or excuse me, phishing, any phishing. So, you know, how many people clicked on a phishing is less important to me than how many people reported it, right? Like you click, oh, I think this is spam. And so you want that to go up because it's an indicator of people willing to share their stuff. And I think maybe also people don't want to feel stupid. I think sometimes technology people and especially security people, I've seen personally, um, when somebody asks a question, they're a little bit timid about asking it because they don't want to go, oh, that's stupid easy. You know, you should know that, right? right? And I think I, I see a lot of, I see a lot of timidness in some cases around security with non-traditional security people. You, you mentioned earlier is around um, people. The human is difficult to change, mm-hmm. but you also identified, right? You know, there are things that humans are just naturally good at, mm-hmm. right? So in your research, are you looking at how we sort of connect that? I mean, how do we take advantage of these core competencies and build outward from there? What, tell, tell me more about some of the things that you've discovered and and type of research that you've been exposed to. So this research that I'm doing is more the front end of that. Figuring out if people have, you know, come up with any of those things that they want to track from a human perspective to say, if I, as I have all my employee base in my risk management program, can I tell if the education or the training or the awareness or whatever I'm doing is, is actually beneficial? Like, is, is it creating good, uh, measures, right? Is, is my risk going down, right? To put it in layman's terms. So is what I'm doing effective? And if not, am I, am, am I able to measure that in any way? Or if there is a measurement that I have that says I track on all of my security incidents, 
um, how many were human caused. And now I have some lessons learned so that I can try and specifically address some of those causes that I've come up with. Um, part of that um, problem, I think, is people who have come up in a very technical field are having also, especially the leadership, right? Like me, I've come, I started programming. I started, you know, then I did, did operating, operating system management and then, secu- you know, security stuff. So I came from a very technical background. When you get to a point where now you've got to consider the human side, it's a shift for those people as well. So they have to kind of, you know, think through and maybe educate themselves more on how to um, encourage behavior that would help their risk management program. I think I got off track there, but no, you did not. This is actually, one could argue this is the core of the conversation, which is your research. Right. And I think I, I think when people hear the human element and doing information risk sort of, I think they hear things like how well did we, you know, did everybody take the training? Um, does everybody know how to change their password and does everybody know, you know, A, B or C kind of thing? Right. Or like we said a minute ago, I gave the phishing example. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, here's a metric, you know, 27% clicked on blah, 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 blah. But I, I sense very deeply that you're talking far more levels of granularity and far more depth. So I'm very curious about what, what are you attempting to try to measure now? So are you looking at like awareness training and trying to associate activities every day. I mean, it's a very difficult problem you're trying to solve. So that that would be much more of a quantitative uh, exercise. Okay. So my research is qualitative. I'm having conversations like this with people, um, leadership in this space, and saying, "Hey, you know, do you have things that you're doing? If so, tell me about them. You know, how do you take all of these things that are, you know, do you even do you even know how many of your security issues are are kind of caused or, or tangentially caused by human problems you know is that something that you're working with and if if they are if they aren't either way you know i I have some more questions (laughs) so ideally right you take this this body of work that i'm doing now and it leads to some other you know more granular like you were mentioning um studies that can help you know dig into some of those reasons either either. are you feel like you're getting interesting responses i mean i I suspect mostly Really? I mean, I, I would almost think that, well, we do annual awareness training and, you know, we can't really discover what is a human sourced failure. I mean, do you run into these types of barriers well, or do you, are you getting some interesting views? No, no, I've got some interesting responses. I mean, just in my career, I mean, I was I was doing this kind of thing for private industry, you know, folks five years ago. No, I've been at the SCI for three years. So before that, yeah, I started driving that in the programs that I was building. So I know people are doing it because I've had conversations with them. Um, the people who I'm, who I'm um, including in my study are, some are doing it better or differently. Um, and you can kind of, you know, get a flavor for, are they more of a technically minded person? Or are they more of a, let's balance the humans with the technical stuff, just in the way they answer questions. Um, but it's pretty fascinating to me. Um, you mentioned security awareness, right? That's more of a compliance activity. Mm-hmm, so, you know, mm-hmm. We have to have 100% of our people go through this one-hour presentation, making them aware of security issues. That's great. That's a checkbox for compliance, though. That's not a risk management function. Maybe it's a start mm-hmm. of one. <laughs> Introducing them to the word cybersecurity, maybe, or in my world, information security is better. Um, but, you know, that's step one or even point five of actually getting them engaged in the program. Okay. 
let what are some areas where people are because I I've I've told folks I was like we need to make it personal as opposed to saying mm-hmm. here's the rigid approach and how do we make it so the individual feels like that they're improving even because it because they have a technical world themselves I mean even every person has a cell phone and whatever and you know they can learn something and improve their own personal security I've always thought is that a way of doing it so what what is some of the interesting ways that you feel comfortable sharing that you look at and go okay I can see that now that's getting into steps potentially mm-hmm. two, 2.53 on right. that scale. So I had an interesting conversation last week. Um, I, I, w- I was somewhere else, not in the U.S., um, having doing some uh, training activities. Um, and somebody in a break, uh, we had just done a, a building cyber awareness um, session. And in a break, this person came and said, um, okay, so how do you feel about the name and shame process for when people do bad things and you, you, know, you call them out on it in a, in a in internal to the organization, but in a public way, I said, that's horrible. Don't ever do that. That you, you want to stop all participation in your program. That's what you do. But on the flip side, some of the things that I've done that have been very successful is calling out positive engagement. So if you had, and you can run a campaign, a fishing campaign or, or something else, but you run it for a week and you don't have to call names. Um, you, you can if there's, there's reason, but you don't have to call names. But you can put together like, we're going to do a fishing campaign over the next two months. For everybody that reports, we're going to track, you know, the department that they're in. And just put a, you know, a board somewhere like on your intranet. It says by department, here's the here's the current scores, right? So this department is is doing really well. They've had twelve people out of however many they have report at this percentage, and you can just keep a ranking, right? People, that's a competitive thing. It's like gamifying the response mm-hmm, rates, right? Mm-hmm. That that helps because that's very positive. Um, one organization I worked with years ago, um, we did something similar. We did we did that uh, for one kind of uh, security activity. And then we had a second thing going on where we said, okay, we were, we were having some issues at the time with people piggybacking in. Uh, so, you know, you badge in, somebody walks in behind you without badging in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said, okay, we're going to actually uh, plant is a strong word, but we're going to ask some of our vendors who are, who are in our space a lot, who don't have badge access to try and get in the building for whatever they're there for on purpose. Like if they came to see me, they would just try to get in without calling me first or whatever. And we had a contest to spot the mole, right? So, you, so it was like the first person to find one of these moles that are going to be happening in the next two weeks, you know, gets uh, a, one of one of the executives had a, a boat on a lake, said, we'll, we'll t- I'll take out to dinner on my boat kind of thing. So it didn't cost a lot. Um, it made a little bit of a competition. Um, here's the interesting thing. And this is, will not surprise you. Um, but we had a number of our uh, salespeople that were very attractive individuals and they didn't get questioned. Right. right. The person who actually, someone actually tracked this person down said, I think this person's not supposed to be here. I, they don't have a visitor pass or whatever. You know, that person maybe was not, you know, the highest from an attractive perspective. I thought that was interesting too. Right. So, but having that kind of game helps people change their mentality. It's a promise of reward, yes, but you also have to change how you behave. So these, you know, had people there scanning for visitor passes, like they should have been doing all along, but they didn't care because there's nothing, you know, there's nothing tangible that comes out of it for them. So I think those kinds of things are very interesting to do, yeah, but some kind of positive reinforcement 
um, is has been very successful uh, for me anyway. Yeah, I think what you're tapping into potentially, as I listen to you, is kind of some people are cut out to be the crossing guard, a mm-hmm. uh, hall monitor, and some people aren't. They don't want to be that person, right. but they all, but everyone has the capacity. So if they understand there's a, there's a, like you said, a win, a reward mm-hmm. in it. It kind of, kind of drums up that capability. Um, I think your point about attractiveness is, it, 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 I don't want to belabor it, but I think it's important that we understand that. That has a that's a massive social thing that yeah I'm, sure you know uh, I, of course I'm not a big fan of it because I'm not attractive <laughs> <laughs> but so maybe I'd be different if I was a ten right but I in cyber we used to in, in information security by the way which is the point you made which I really like but there there were times when you know we were doing social engineering or some sort of on site dumpster diving junk or whatever and you know we'd always send uh, you know the the best looking guy or gal you know for that reason and it's something to be be aware of but. To that point is, I was having a similar conversation recently, and when you look at people who are not security-oriented, but you want them to think in security ways, mm-hmm. is, and it goes back to your comment about defensive posture, you know, especially with with, uh, with martial arts and things of that nature, is you, you have to be aware of certain potential behaviors mm-hmm. and be able to sort of juxtapose your yourself with regards to a potential threat, right? Right. And there's all kinds of theories, you know, OODA loops and uh, anyway, all kinds of stuff around that kind of the physical aspects of it. Now, it's because people fall uh, victim to con jobs, like a better sure. term, right? A lot. Okay. So um, do you feel that there's a risk of creating a culture that is very questioning, very, mm-hmm. um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, suspicious, ja- paranoid. suspicious and jaded and paranoid. Yes. <laughs> so for security people are like, yeah, I, that's how I live. Everybody should live like that. So, right? Yeah. I think, I think you have to create a little more of that. Right. But it, it could be positive. Hmm. If, if you, if you create it in, in that manner, right. Oh, you know, somebody brings something to you said, this is just weird. I, is, I don't know if it's a thing you, you were talking about people being fearful, like you get kind of scared of introducing something to you like, Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. You know, just something as easy as that, making them feel rewarded in a, and just, Hey, you know, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, helps that. But I think you have to create suspicion, especially with how good things are phishing emails these days and how, how, good they're getting at some of those. I mean, I show some of those when I do things uh, on occasion. I said, this is one I got. It looks just like my bank. And I looked at it and went, that's fantastic. Way to go, fishing guys. I'm not clicking on it, but that was that was well done. <laughs> but, you know, if I can show that I get even, you know, that kind of level of, of scrutiny I have to put on things makes people feel a little bit better, I think, um, if they're questioning things and, and nervous about questioning things. So that's actually a really interesting juxtaposition because I'm thinking it's like creating a society of you know questioning and suspicious and paranoid people. But I think um, what you're saying is is being proud of your ability to detect such things yeah, and absolutely. converting it to that positive energy, right? And be able to pat people on the back, like of a better term. I do believe that people are a huge asset, and I there is huge discussions, call them arguments if you want. <laughs> With people saying, no, no, users, you know, the whole user discussion, right? I'm air quoting for those. Uh, 20, 20 years ago, someone asked me what my biggest problem was in my job. And I said, oh, my goodness, users. <laughs> users, yeah. Right. So, I mean, and I'm not saying that that necessarily goes away because you still have to deal with people every day. 
And, and if you were doing like what I was doing, which is just building, you know, an information risk program, you have to confront the fact that how do I get more people on my side? Right. And, and we're seeing this across the full spectrum of cyber or information security is we see, you know, this whole push now of, you know, CISOs being, you know, don't say no, but say yes, but exactly. that kind of philosophy. And so we're looking at different ways of engaging at all levels within the environment. And uh, in a weird, in some way, it's a shame, but because of the research you're doing now, which I think is going to pay well, huge dividends, frankly, because like, we're bringing people into that equation. So it has to be a yes or no answer. I mean, I, people get frustrated with me and, and I make a joke of it when I'm teaching. When people ask a good question, it's like, okay, you're going to, you're going to hear this a lot from me, but it's, it depends <laughs> or yes and no. Um, but you yeah. So I guess the hardcore technical folks that I've worked with in my career um, have been very black and white thinking. You do this and you don't do this. This is good. This is bad. And it's not a tenable position. Like, the world is gray. Information security <laughs> is gray, which is why risk is an interesting place to be in because you know, it's, everything's a risk. It can be very low and perhaps not you know, likely to happen, or it can be very high. And it's probably going to happen today if you don't do something. But that area of risk is all about shades of gray. So it's constantly people get, you know, can I do this can, in my program? I can't meet this control. Can I do this? I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that. That's normally my answer. hundred percent. Okay. Well, let's talk about that and give me your reasoning. Let me ask you some questions. And by the end, we've either in my mind lowered their risk profile coming in or somebody has accepted the fact that this is going to be a risk issue that has, you know, that I will constantly repeat, report back to them. <laughs> you know, it's two months later and you said it was going to be fixed in 60 days. Is it fixed yet? Oh, well, that's going to escalate. So I, you know, from a, I don't get all emotional about it. It's just a risk thing. And I think a lot of the, the very hardcore technical folks are very emotional about the right and the wrong way to do something. And I think you've got to take that out of the equation and be a little more, um, acknowledge a little more that, Things are not on or off all the time. You know, uh, I'm grinning big grin on my face because <laughs> we we would get along like peas and carrots, right? Mm. I could have a we probably need to do another episode Fair just enough. talk about risk because uh, <laughs> it's funny because you have these conversations with people and sometimes you just see their eyes just roll back in their head like oh it's so boring. I'm like okay, but if you want the if you want the answer, we have to talk about it, right? Yeah, so we're I most, can't just throw out a yes and a no. Some of the most interesting of those kinds of conversations that I've had. You know, is, is a, as a, a manager of a, a group, maybe the server group or something, says, comes to put a, an exception to policy in front of me and says, I can't do this because this application can't be patched for a myriad of reasons. I'm like, okay, here's where I think the risk is, given what you've told me in the conversation with have, here's where I think the risk is. And it, and it comes out higher than maybe was anticipated or previous to me being there, people would say, okay, and, and check the box and say, now I have an exception on file. We're good. Well, that doesn't take the risk away just because you know about it. It lets you do something with it. So I say, that's fantastic. At the level that it comes out at, um, just the way the risk process works, you can't sign off on that. We, we have to take that to the CIO or to some, whatever whoever's next in the chain for you know, acknowledging that that risk exists. Remind me in a minute to talk about acknowledge versus accept. <clears throat> so, I said, and as soon as you say, I have to take it to the CIO to acknowledge that this risk is in his environment or her environment, whoever, um, they go, whoa, wait, well, hang on. <laughs> Basically, you know, let me rejigger what I'm doing to see if I can get a better story 
and, and reduce the risk before it has to go that far. So whereas people have get, kind of been given a blank slate to make their own choices, when you put a process in place and you say, okay, that's fine. We have to do this and we have to do this. And this person has to look at it and they go, oh, well, they don't want to, they don't want their name to be associated with that person for this thing. So it changes, that changes a little bit of behavior as well. Right. And then you don't get as many of those kinds of requests coming to you anymore because they figured out that somebody is going to look at it for real and not just check off acknowledge that they got the report right so it's interesting and you in your point about acknowledge versus acceptance i have a feeling i think i know where you're going with this one. Oh, i have i have a i have a strong <clears throat> lesson learned with that uh maybe 18 or 19 years ago one of my first uh, risk management jobs uh, we had a brand new cio at the organization and there was a had been a huge profile uh data breach of one somebody one of our employees somewhere uh, in dc i think and that CIO got called into, you know, answer questions. He'd been there a week. <laughs> he had nothing to do with it, but all of a sudden he's called in to answer a whole bunch of questions. And it was the next week. So his second week on the job that we put together, you know, the, the here, here are the risk exception things to look at, you know, during this week's meeting or this month. I forget how often the meetings were, but here are the ones we need to look at today. And out of my mouth, it was a high risk area that we had assessed for high risk. And I said, accept. And he said, what kind of a moron do you think I am that I would accept, accept something like that? I said, okay. Mm-hmm. Can I get you to acknowledge that it exists? <laughs> he said, yes, we can do that. So ever since then, I acknowledge risk. I don't accept risk. <laughs> Unless Interesting. It's low enough to be acceptable, right? So I think it's a, it's a funny story, but I never again do I use that yeah you know with without thinking about it I had similar experience but it was the person wouldn't acknowledge it they didn't believe the risk existed, oh no that's that's a despite problem. all the evidence yeah yeah that's a whole different animal right but I, I thought that's where you were going but that's it is important it's an important distinction and I think I, unfortunately or fortunately in risk management the same as for information security broadly, but in information risk management and risk process, words matter. Yeah, for words sure. really, really matter, right? Okay. Um, so first of all, it's clear that you and I have to do another show some point in <laughs> okay. time. We have like six other topics we got to do. So we're going to be, you know, maybe we could, uh, get into the conversation together. But I want to ask you one last point about the human side of things. Okay. And just generally, when you take a look at, you know, you're going through this research process, you're looking at this, you spend a lot of time in GRC and risk. You're out there in the trenches having conversations about risk within the concept of people and beyond, of course. Where are we going to be in five years? Oh, Honestly, because I, yeah, I, I, we've got to move the ball forward. I mean, attacks are massively more impactful today than they were 10, 15 years ago. It, it just seems like we're, I don't know, we're two steps back, one step forward. And I feel, I personally think people and acknowledge that understanding where that fits in the risk spectrum is super important. That's why I was so excited to talk to you. So <laughs> Is this is this that next step for us for the industry? What is it going to look like in five years? Uh, I don't do predictions, so let me let me, <laughs> let me go a different direction with that. Um, okay, I think, and this has been true my entire career, in the, as long as I've been in information security, anyway. Um, the step forwards that you talked about come immediately after a huge security issue or a huge data breach. It may be the first of its kind, kinds of things, right? That when something massive happens. Um, then resources get put on it and 
processes get changed. And that happens, at, you know, at a company level, it happens at a, a larger level as well. So I would say, sadly, I think something really hugely catastrophic is going to have to happen um, before, you know, as a information security society, if you will, um, we're allowed to make those kinds of improvements. That's, and like I said, very sad, because that's, I think that's what happens. At least that's a pattern that I've seen. Um, I would love to be able to continue working behind the scenes on this, this human side, because I think that's going to be the key that allows something to happen before things change. And I don't like, I don't like it when people, you know, get singled out and blamed for what is a systemic problem of, of not valuing people in this environment. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years, but um, I'm doing my part anyway <laughs> to try and, to try and encourage people to be- have a better balance between all of the technical stuff going on and the human side of what's going on. Wow. So first I hope nothing does, you know, nothing massively destructive has to happen. I sadly kind of agree with that, that conclusion, but I, I just went in by saying, Carnegie carries, CERT and Carnegie carries a huge amount of weight in cyber, as you clearly know. And so I, I think hopefully something big doesn't have to happen and people will start taking advantage of your research. And as all the things that you're doing will begin to have a broader effect. I, I really do hope that. And uh, and hopefully we can all learn from that and begin to apply it. Because I do think the, the change is big and broad, but I, I, something tells me it's not a mile deep. It's a inch deep, mile wide kind of problem, perhaps. I don't know, but... I'm just happier that you're out there working on this and hopefully we'll get a lot from it. I, I can't begin to say thank you enough. I really appreciate you taking it time. Con- it was a fun conversation. I just looked at the time like, oh my goodness. I know. We, we went right through it pretty quick, right? Yeah. But, um, well, listen, thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. For everybody listening, thank you for listening and catch us next time on Security Bites.